but we also believe something even better than the things you're presenting. Yes, we, uh, we are pro-life. In fact, we're so pro-life uh, that we think all life is valuable, and that includes women who have aborted their babies. That includes unwed mother mothers. Uh, it's all embracing. It's all stemming from that idea of the image of God. We believe that every life has inherent dignity because it was created by God for life. Uh, and in the same way, um, when it comes to sexuality, what we're presenting uh, is that Jesus offers a better way. And I know that can be mind-altering. And, and here's the last thing I would say. If Jesus isn't who he said he was, if he isn't actually alive, if he just was buried in an unmarked tomb and that was just a misunderstanding of history, my opinion, our opinion on sexuality, on abortion is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Okay. But if Jesus is alive, all of us as Christians have already started to learn, and you will learn too, everything you know is wrong. And that, I will tell you from 10 years of experience, is the best news you've ever heard, even if it's hard to understand on the front end. And so, anyways, wherever you're at, whatever your opinions are, whether you identify as a Christian or not, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, this morning, we're actually going to be looking at... Um, at Jesus in tension with the religious leaders of his day, and it's especially appropriate because I think all of us recognize, even on those two issues that I mentioned, uh, that religion can operate in such a way that it adversely and disproportionately affects particular types of people, people in the minority. Uh, and this morning, we're going to see that as Jesus uh, stands against that, as he combats that, as he presents a different way and so, um, if you have a Bible this morning, please open it up to Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, right in the pew in front of you, you'll find, um, you'll find a Bible that you can use. There's an index at the front, which you can use to find the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark. There is a structure to this section of Mark's gospel, um, beginning uh, in chapter 2, um, in verse 1, and going all the way through chapter 3, verse 6, we find five consecutive stories that all bear the same marks. In each of them, we find Jesus going about his ministry, we find a question uh, from those who are observing, uh, and we, through that question, find an answer of how Jesus is different than the expectations, than the religion, than the atmosphere of his day. In other words, all of these passages are about how controversial Jesus was. In fact, next week it will culminate in a final decision by the religious leaders of Israel, not just to stand against Jesus' ministry, but to put a stop to it by plotting his death. Okay, uh, and so it's significant. In looking at these, it's helpful for us because we can also discern where Jesus is different than religion. And I want to reiterate again, as I've done every week in this study, that we're using that word religion in a limited sense. Okay, um, it is very common for us, whether we are Christians or not, to be anti-religious. But that all 
hinges upon how we define that term. When we have called this series Jesus Against Religion here, we're not talking about organized religion. Uh, we're not talking about uh, a standardized sense of morality. We're not talking about doctrine or dogma. We're talking about the tremendous human trait to take all of those things and use them to belittle others and use them to elevate ourselves uh, and create uh, uh, burdens that no one can lift but we stand on top of and look down on everyone else, okay? Um, and so here, the controversy hinges upon the Sabbath, this Jewish practice of observing the Sabbath every seventh day of the week, what we know as Saturday, as a day of rest and worship set aside for Israelites. So let's read starting in verse 23 of chapter 2 to the end of the chapter. One Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he in, was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, this idea of rest stems from Genesis and reaches all the way through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, to the end chapters of Revelation. And as we look at Jesus, who identifies himself as Lord of the Sabbath this morning, I pray that you would help us to find true rest. Lord, work can be driven by security. It can be driven by ambition. It can be driven uh, just for the need for our, our provision for sustenance. Uh, Lord, but if we understand who you are, we work from a point of rest. And so I pray that you would help us to see these things and see our own hearts uh, in the light this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In the midst of the people of the Middle East, there were two defining traits that set the Jews apart. Two things that if you spent any time in Israel would be instantly and inherently distinct, okay? There was the dietary laws, okay? And, and I'll lump into there even though it has nothing to do with diet circumcision. It's just that one's not very visible. As a concept, it's visible, but it's not something you'd notice if you visited Israel. Um, but the dietary laws and then the Sabbath, okay? Now, that's hard for us to wrap our head around because in a modern setting, a weekend is a normal part of most people's lives. A day off is a usual thing. But in the ancient world, it was Israel alone that had this idea of a day of rest. All the people groups around them, work was a daily and usual thing. Okay. On top of that, the Sabbath was significant for Israel um, because it's one of the Ten Commandments they were given, if you're counting number four. 
okay? In fact, if you look at uh, Exodus and at Deuteronomy, where we find the Ten Commandments recorded, more time is written about that fourth commandment than any of the other commandments, okay? And so it's right in the center, but more is said. It's the only one where a reason is given, okay? And so you may be familiar with, you should not steal, and that's it. That's all that's said about this one, but honor the Sabbath and keep it holy is followed by a because, a reason is given. Interestingly enough, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, two different reasons are given. One of them, the one in Exodus, is honor the Sabbath and keep it holy because God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, also, we repeat that pattern. We follow that pattern. In other words, Sabbath goes back to creation and it goes back to who God is and what he's done. It's a reflection of those things, okay? The other one says uh, that you should honor the Sabbath and keep it holy because Israel were slaves in Egypt and God brought them out of that reality. Now the thing about slavery is there is no day off, right? Every day is a work day. In fact, every hour you're at the beck and call of your master. And so a distinguishing characteristic of these redeemed people uh, was that they, um, they had this day, this Sabbath, now, the idea here, when we go back to creation, I think is a significant one, because when it says that on the seventh day, God rested, we should recognize right off the bat, that's not out of necessity. It's not, you know, like God is, uh, you know, wiping the sweat off his brow and thinking, oh, that was a lot of work. I think I'm going to take tomorrow off. That's not the idea. He rested primarily, and the author of Hebrews draws this out in chapter 4, because his work was complete. It was over, okay? And so the rest was one of no work necessary, and it was also a rest of enjoyment, okay? And so what does it say about the seventh day in Genesis chapter 1? Actually, it might be the beginning of chapter 2. It says that God looked at everything he had seen, and it was very good, okay? The idea there is that he enjoyed what he had made. Okay. In other words, just the concept of Sabbath alone says a handful of things that we should own up to, the, up, own up to this morning and understand. One is, life is more than work. Okay. And so when we Sabbath, when we take a day of rest, we're saying uh, that even though we may need to work to live, that there's also a value in life that goes above and beyond work and we should stop and smell the roses. We should enjoy uh, these things. It also says that this world as it stands is not merely utilitarian. It's not just to be used, okay? It's to be enjoyed. And so remember, uh, in an ancient agrarian context, the majority of your work involves working the land working a field, farming, and things like this, okay? But using the earth that God has given us in that way, Sabbath is a reminder that the world is also here just to be inherently beautiful. Not just to eat, but to enjoy looking at. Not just, uh, you know, to farm the ground, but to enjoy nature. All of these things are bound up in God as creator and its design. Um, in the same way, the Sabbath is also about that with other people. Okay. First off, we should recognize what it says for you. Especially those of you who are ambitious. Or maybe if I'm going to be a little less kind, obsessive. 
in your work. If you're constantly on call, available, constantly working all the time, okay, a day off becomes a difficulty because you say, I'm too essential for that. I'm too necessary to take a day off. If I don't answer this email, everything is going to fall apart. The problem is you put yourself at the center of your own little universe there, and it's just not true. The truth is, if you take tomorrow off and don't show up to work and turn off your phone, the world will not end, okay? And Sabbath is a recognition of the fact that we can stop and the world moves forward, okay? But it's also that, as I mentioned, for other people. In fact, one of the rules that Israel had on the Sabbath was that even their hired work as well as any foreigners living in the land, everyone was to take a Sabbath. That's important, isn't it? It's so that you can't identify yourself as so religious that you keep the Sabbath, but to do so and to keep the gears moving, you employ you know, all of your household servants, you employ all of your employees to work extra hard because you're not going to be around today. Okay. That also turns people into utility. It turns human beings into resources, and it says, I can use you, but the Sabbath is for enjoying one another, for enjoying God and recognizing that you're not merely useful to me. And so the Sabbath is kind of this profound, uh, life-altering idea, and it still ripples out even in our non-religious culture today. In fact, why do we have a weekend, two days? It's because of the Jewish Sabbath and the Christian Sunday being joined together, uh, and so over time it just kind of took over and became routine, okay? Um, and so here, what we observe is that on a Sabbath, on a Saturday, Jesus and his disciples are walking through someone else's grain field. And as they do so, they're taking some of the heads of grain, they're rubbing it in their hands to get rid of the chaff, and then they're putting it in their mouth and chewing it, okay? Now, it's worth pointing out, and once again, this, this reveals God's hand in the Old Testament law. That act of wandering through someone else's field and eating as you go is sanctioned by the Old Testament law. Okay. It was completely okay. Now, you couldn't just go through and harvest a bunch of sheaves and take it to your house. That would be stealing. But the God of the Old Testament is very concerned with the poor. And so anyone who was just passing through, in fact, Israel was required not even to reap their entire fields, but to leave the corners of it for those who would come who uh, didn't have anything to eat. And so when the Pharisees jump out of the grain field, jump, you know, just catch them in the moment uh, here, the idea they're complaining about is not theft. It's Sabbath breaking. Okay? The problem is not that they're taking these grains, but that they're taking these grains on the Sabbath. And that might seem just completely outlandish to you. But here's what happened. Uh, with the post-exile Judaism, okay, what we call Second Temple Judaism, um, uh, this doctrine of the Sabbath, which is stated in the Old Testament in relatively broad terms, usually when it's referenced, it's do not work on the Sabbath, had been codified extensively by the rabbis into a detailed system of how you could break the Sabbath. 
And that detailed system was broken down into 39 particular categories, one of which was reaping. Okay? You cannot reap any grain on the Sabbath, but in the details of that codified list, this would include reaping. Okay? Even though they were just doing it with their hands, they were so extensive in the details of this law that they defined what burdens could be carried on a Sabbath. If you had it on your shoulder, or you carried it in your hand, uh, or you put it on your back, that was a burden. If you carried it on your foot, or with your elbow, uh, that, or with your ear, that was not a problem. Okay? You weren't to put anything in your mouth and eat it that was larger than an olive, okay? because that would cause too much chewing, which is too much work. Okay? You couldn't uh, use a length of rope and pull up a bucket, of, uh, a bucket of water, nor could you tie a knot in a rope. They made an exception for women's clothing. And so some Jews who needed water on the Sabbath would use women's clothing instead of a rope to carry their bucket, okay? This was a systemized uh, law, uh, and I want you to notice what it does to the Sabbath as a concept. It makes it a tremendous amount of work. It makes life hard on everybody, okay? Now, they do here jump out and catch them in the act, and it's intriguing that they're here to spot it. Uh, not only because uh, this pharisaical Sabbath code also included a very limited distance that you were allowed to walk away from your home, so we don't know why they're out here, uh, but also because, like I said, it's like they leap out of the bushes. This is the most similar place in the scriptures we have to the Monty Python Spanish Inquisition, right? They just jump out of nowhere, and notice that word, look. If I would translate that in modern language, it's aha, right? They feel like they've caught the disciples in the act, and that's not just because they're against Jesus. This was general Pharisee behavior. They were constantly and consistently seeking to maintain the law, not just from their own convictions, but as a standard that everyone else needed to keep. They were uh, religious detectives, okay? They were constantly looking for, uh, for Sabbath breakers. And so they're here, as we'll see in the, next, uh, in the next chapter. In chapter three, Jesus goes to the synagogue, right? The Jewish version of what we're doing right now. And they uh, basically plant a man whose hand is withered, one of his hands doesn't work correctly, in the midst of the synagogue as a trap for Jesus. Let's see if he'll heal this guy, right? This is how committed the Pharisees are to keeping the law. Um, but here's the thing. As they do this, they betray that they've missed the entire point. In fact, I want you to recognize uh, why are the disciples gathering some grain as they're passing through the field? It's because they don't have anything to eat, right? Jesus, over the course of his itinerant ministry, was homeless. They were constantly away from home. When he uh, sends his disciples out on their own trip, he says, don't take a whole lot of provisions, okay? He leaves them in a place of dependence upon other people and on God as provider, okay? Uh, and so here, they're going, they don't have very much, and they're eating not because it's tasty. If, of all the ways to prepare grain, 
just chewing naked grain is probably the worst, except maybe certain vegan brownies. Um, but, uh, but here, they're going through this, and they're hungry. And see, here's the problem. This is a ritual, it's a significant one, and it's also one that was designed to affirm things about God's good design for life. And the Jews have made it a burden, and as religion always does, that burden inversely impacts the poor. Inversely impacts uh, those who are just trying to survive. Okay. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, look at what Jesus uh, answers here. They say, why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? Okay, so notice what he does here. He says, all right, you want to talk about the Old Testament? Haven't you read what happened in the life of David? And remember here, David is a significant character for a couple of reasons. One, he's a national hero the king of Israel who God had provided for, whom he made covenant promises to that one of his children would reign on the throne forever. Uh, the, the king of Israel, not only is he king here, um, or not only is he a representative Israelite, but as the king, as God's anointed, uh, here he is. And what happens in this story is David is on the run from Saul. Okay? Saul was Israel's first king, uh, he's very anti-David. Saul, because of his own rebellion to God, God comes in judgment and says, I'm taking the throne from you and giving it to another. And then he anoints and chooses David. But there's this seven-year period where the two coexist. Okay? Uh, and so if you read the story, you'll see that David is constantly faithful and not doing anything rebellious against Saul. And Saul is constantly trying to put David to death. And so here he drives him out of Jerusalem. David is on the run with a small troop of men, and he has nothing. He's just been run out of his home, run away from his family. He has nothing. He has all these men. They're hungry. And they come to where the tabernacle is. Uh, and notice what it says here. Uh, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence, which it's not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave to those who were with him. In the tabernacle, one of the pieces of furniture was the table of showbread, or as it says here, the table of the bread of the presence. Okay? This was 12 loaves, one for each tribe of Israel, that every week was laid out in the tabernacle, Okay, on a table and then replaced every week with a fresh set of bread. The bread after that seven-day period was to be eaten by and only by the priests. Now, if you've read the Levitical law, you know that the uh, standards such as who can eat what and not eat what are actually very significant, okay? Uh, because it has to do with the ritual status of clean and unclean as well as holy, Okay. And so because that bread had been presented for the Lord, only the sanctified, the set apart, the holy, the priests could eat it. But here David comes and in his necessity, he asks the priest, can you spare any food? And he says, honestly, the only thing we have to eat right now is the bread of presence. And David goes, that's sufficient. Give it to me. And the priest does so. Okay. Now we can see Jesus's logic here. Uh, just by looking at the way he puts this, 
He says again in verse 25, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? That's what makes this story different, okay? The issue here is that uh, the necessity of life superseded the ritual of the showbread, okay? And so Jesus here is making a similar point about the Sabbath, So, going back to Sabbath laws, for example, we have one teaching of a rabbi that gives a hypothetical to help understand what's going on uh, in the Sabbath, okay? If a house fell down because of an earthquake or something like that and just created a pile of rubble, the Jews were only allowed to remove enough rocks to determine if the people inside were living or dead, okay? If they were dead, they were to be left till tomorrow. If they were living, then they could be rescued, if they came along, some, along someone who uh, was severely hurt, they could do just enough to make sure that the wound didn't kill them today, but couldn't do any healing that was more long-standing and unnecessary. Okay. And so here, Jesus elevates need, and he basically asks the question about the Sabbath and about uh, the rituals in general. Are you observing this in a way that promotes life or harms it, that moves towards human flourishing or hinders it. Let me point out what the Pharisees don't do here. They don't look at these poor people, or in here, in this case, the disciples, and see them gleaning in the fields and going, wow, they have nothing to eat on the Sabbath. I should feed them. Instead, they just come criticizing. They come in judgment. Jesus criticizes the Pharisees in another place because they lay heavy burdens upon the common people and won't lift a single finger to help them bear them up. Okay? And so the idea here uh, is, is one, like I said, that we have a, uh, a modern, a regular, consistent modern comparison in modern life, which is that oftentimes laws are legislated in a way where those who are most impacted by them suffer the most greatly under them. This is not a perfect illustration because what we're talking about here is ritual, the sanctity of the Sabbath or, or the sanctity of the showbread. Um, but if you, take, uh, if you take the issue of being pro-life, okay, if we stand as Christians and have an opinion about the value of a baby's life and fight for that life and do nothing to support pregnant women, young mothers, We do nothing to come alongside them. We're no better than the Pharisees. We can't be pro-life of the unborn and not pro-life of the recently born. It doesn't work. But let's just be fair and be honest that in the history of the church and in this broad category of the religious right, which is a whole lot more than Christianity and and in some ways a whole lot less, uh, we need to recognize that's exactly what happens. In fact, on so many of these issues, everybody in America is forced to choose a victim. I'll give you another example, okay? Um, a few years ago, there was the, the change in laws uh, uh, about using the bathroom of your, of your personal sense of gender, right? And there were many Christians, some of them I knew personally, who were concerned about that law because they knew that it could be abused and put children in particular in danger, okay? Because it gave people a justifiable reason of being in a place where they should not be. 
Now, actually, that logic makes a lot of sense to me. But the whole reason that legislation was put into place was because of the danger of those who are transgender, who do not feel safe anywhere. And so what happened was, once again, there were Christians who chose a victim and ignored the value and dignity of the others involved. We've done the same thing on, on pro-life issues. We've done it in many other places. But we as human beings are so religious, we don't just do it on issues of serious moral consequence. We also do it in issues of what is ritual. Okay. And so here, um, here as we see, that's the tension of what's going on. And he basically says here that human need supersedes ritual. Let me give you one more example, and I honestly don't think it's one that probably applies to us because I just don't see this type of religious fervor in Seattle. But if, if you feel like there is something significantly justifying that makes you a better person before God and before others about church attendance, and you're driving to church and you see a person who's broken down on the road and your logic says, I can't do this because I have to get to church, you've missed something. Okay. You've misoriented. This is that bent. And we could illustrate it in many other places, but this is what's going on here. Jesus holds up this example and he says, here is a place where need has superseded ritual. And it's not just a critique on the Pharisees' treatment of the disciples' present tense as this story is playing out, but a broader critique on their whole way of going about life. Okay. The second point he makes here uh, kind of makes this clear. Verse 27, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The recognition here is the Sabbath was designed as a gift. Rest is a gift. God built the world with this idea of Sabbath in, uh, in it, laid it out and gave his law to Israel, and like all of God's law, it's a gift. It's to promote human flourishing. It leads to life. Where the law lays out boundaries and says, do not do, it's because there are negative consequences on you and other people in those behaviors. When it says do, it's because those things encourage and promote and cultivate life. And the Sabbath was given as a gift. The idea that he's saying, and I don't think there were any Pharisees that promoted this idea, but this is the logical consequence of the way they acted with these things. They said it's as if God created the world and went, oh, I have this Sabbath. You know what? I should make people to keep it. Right? That, that doesn't make sense. It's a weird place to come out. But in their behavior and in their decision and in their judgmentalism, that is the obvious inference. God gave us the Sabbath. We must keep it. And it's like, no, no, no. God gave us the Sabbath so we could keep it. It's to be a place of rest. And they've made it a place of work. And here's the thing. Broadly, religion makes us do the same thing with, uh, with law in general with morality in general. We take these things, uh, say, for example, if you're Jewish, you take the Old Testament law and you lay it out and you say, I must keep this so that. Okay, and it becomes a work. It becomes a labor. We can do the same thing as Christians. We take the things that we believe that God has asked us to do and we use it as a badge that we belong. We make it an effort. Okay, 
Here's the thing. Work predates what the Bible calls the fall. And once again, in the ancient world, that's unique. If you read the old creation myths of the Greeks and the Romans or the Babylonians and the Mesopotamians, work is what went wrong in life. The gods created human beings and either they created them in a constant state of rest and enjoyment, that's what paradise is to them, or the gods, through their own tumultuous behaviors, accidentally created a world and were so hungry and lazy that they created human beings to provide sacrifices to give them something to eat. Right? It's just a, a labor force for them. Um, but here comes the creation story in Genesis, and it affirms the value and the purpose of work. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule over creation. Adam is given a garden, and he's to work it, to till it, to tend it. Okay? All of that's before. What happens when Adam and Eve choose their own way against God's way, when they eat of the tree, when they sin against God, what happens when human beings fall is now the work becomes a toil. Now the earth as it was designed to yield abundantly and fruitfully at human touch now produces thorns and thistles and is resistant to these things. Okay. The, the way that we experience the curse of the fall in our lives and our work is in futility and in toil. And so the Sabbath is a reminder that creation was designed to be more than that, and it's also a reminder that God was going to provide rest, that he had a plan uh, that would do something different. And, and the truth is, we work for lots of different reasons. Religiously and, uh, and at our jobs, we work for lots of different reasons. We can strive to work so hard to affirm our significance. We want to make our mark on life. We want to prove that we matter. We can strive to work to create and cultivate a sense of security. I just need enough so I'm not afraid. We can strive and work to demonstrate to everybody how great we are. It can be a demonstration of pride. I want the status that comes with success. And all of those are in us, not because we're human, but because we're religious. And we see the same thing happening in religion. We can take the Old Testament law, we can take the rules of engagement, and we can do them because we need significance. I need to do everything right. I need to do everything perfectly. We can do it as a sense of security. If I don't do these things, God will destroy me. We can do it because of our own pride. And we can say, look, I just want everybody to know that this is the type of person I am. I'm righteous. I'm holy. I'm better than you. Right? Those things are built into the human heart. And they corrupt even the most gracious and, what's the word I want for that? Morally neutral pieces of what God has given us. Now, I don't, morally neutral isn't right for the Sabbath, because like I said, it was, it's significantly about economic justice. It's significantly about a whole lot more. But it seems like just a random law at first thing. But even that we can take and we can make it a way of oppression. We can make it a way of self-exaltation. We can make it a labor that demonstrates that we are the faithful, that, that, uh, that we deserve God's goodness. But that's not how it was designed. That's not what it was destined to be. God made the Sabbath for man. 
not man for the Sabbath. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, he points to this place in one of the Psalms where uh, David himself is looking back on a statement that God made to Israel. Israel comes to the border of the land of promise, Israel, the place that he promised Abraham's descendants would inhabit. They're right there on the border, and they decide not to enter in because the land is full of enemies. Because it's afraid. they're just not afraid. They're afraid that they can't take the land. And so God speaks in judgment over that generation, and he says, they shall not enter into my rest. Now, here's the logic of the author of Hebrews. He says, why there does God call it his rest? And he says, it's because God has enjoyed rest since the seventh day. And what he was inviting Israel into in the land was a personification of the fact that God wants to share that rest with human beings. But because of unbelief, they do not enter into it. And he says, if David is writing after Joshua has brought that next generation into the land, if he's writing from the promised land and, and warns his audience to not make the same mistake and to uh, recognize that today is the day of salvation and enter into that rest for themselves, he says then it's still available. What he goes on to point out is that that rest is available for us in Jesus Christ. That Jesus came and lived the life that we cannot live and died the death that we deserved and freely brings us into that rest. Okay? Partially, this is demonstrated in the way we go about thinking of our week as Christians. The Sabbath, for the Jewish mindset, was the seventh day. And so you work until you rest. But because Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday, the church began to celebrate uh, their own day of rest, their own day of worship, not on Saturday, but on Sunday. And that makes symbolic sense. Because in whatever we do, whether we would label it, label it religious or secular, whether we would label it moral or just, just sustenance, as Christians, it's not that we don't work, but we work from rest and not for it. We work from a place where, uh, as Timothy Keller says, and I love this, where God has already taken care of the work under our work. So we don't have to work for security because we already have it. As Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor power nor principality nor things that are nor things to come, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's security. It, what we have and most value cannot be taken from us. We no longer need to work to prove ourselves because we have this foreign righteousness of Jesus Christ that we wear like clothing and we stand before God as righteous as Jesus is. And so we have nothing to prove. In fact, the cross of Christ, the great work of Christ, the day that he did not Sabbath, if you will, is so significant because it shows that we need a Savior and that a Savior was provided. And so it's not that we uh, are enough for God to save us. We can never be enough. That's why Jesus had to die. But because Jesus willingly and so completely provided for us in his death, we no longer need to work for salvation. We stand instead on this gift of rest. We enter in to rest. Look at the third thing that Jesus says here in verse 28. He says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
Now, every time in each of these passages, Jesus has made a self-proclamation. In the first one, he said, the Son of Man is able to forgive sins. And then he says, the Son of Man came not for the righteous, but for sinners, like a doctor comes for the sick. He says, I'm the physician of souls. But here he says, Lord of the Sabbath. And that might not sound like much to you. I mean, even if you take it and you're like, okay, so he's, he's in charge of one day a week. What is, what's the idea here? You need to remember that the Sabbath wasn't given as part of the Mosaic law by Moses. It wasn't tied to Moses. The Jews tied it all the way back to Genesis. For Jesus to put himself over the Sabbath is to put himself in the place of the only one who was around when the world was designed. If he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he's the Lord of everything. Jesus isn't just saying that he's the way to rest here. He's saying he's rest itself. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, one of the things that that means is that Jesus can tell his disciples how to rightly behave on the Sabbath in tune with its original intent, right? When he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, he basically says at the end of this competition, I'm the only judge. It doesn't matter if you, like a Russian judge, just give a six. It's not an issue. They don't get to participate in judgment. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. But more significantly than that, think of what Jesus says a little bit later. He says, come all who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. If you think that Christianity is about work, but work is properly and rightly aligning with truth, the right work, the one work that you need to do, then you misunderstand what Christianity is. And that's not just for you this morning who are exploring Christianity and seeing it. This you need to understand significantly uh, is that Christianity is not a way to live so that you can be saved. Jesus came so that you might have life, and that salvation plays, it out, plays out in a way to live. If you think of the human life like a race, in Jesus Christ, we cross the finish line up front, and then we run. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's because we're so religious. We're so human-oriented. We think effort leads to but it's also true that true rest frees us up to work for what the work is supposed to be about. If your work, religious or otherwise, is about your security, that it can never be in service to others. It will always be something you do because you have to do it or no one else will. It will always be something that you do for selfish reasons. But how does Jesus look at the whole law? He says, if you don't reach this, you fall short. If you want to fulfill the law, recognize it in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Sabbath is about that. But we can, like everything else, make it about something else. And Jesus looks at them here and he says, don't you understand that the way you're doing this is incongruent with both of those? Martin Luther was a Catholic monk for many years. And the way that he became a monk is he got caught in a thunderstorm that was so significantly serious, he was afraid for his life. And he basically made a bargain with God. He said, God, if you spare my life tonight, then I will devote my life to you in a monastery. I will devote my life to you in celibacy and not get married. I will spend the rest of my life repaying you. 
But he says in his journals, because of that, he hated God. He hated every day of his life of serving God. Then one day he was reading in the book of Romans in chapter 1, and he read about the fact that righteousness is available in faith, the righteousness of God, and it clicked. And he saw this truth of Christianity that we're talking about today, that righteousness is not found in our behavior, but in what Jesus did for us. Now, did he stop being a monk? Eventually he did. Did it change some of his religious behavior and, and make him stop doing things he thought he needed to do? In some places. But he spent the rest of his life in the worship of God and in the love of others. He didn't work less. He was freed up to do the work that matters. He was freed up to pursue God's design, including God's good rest available. He worked, yes, but he worked from a place of rest and security with the work under his work taken care of. Okay. That's why when Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest, he doesn't stop there. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if you're not familiar with what a yoke is, this is what you put on a pair of oxen or a pair of horses or a pair of donkeys when they're pulling a plow. And the interesting thing is, the yokes in Jesus' day, when he refers to it as his yoke, okay, he's implying that it's a two-person yoke. What makes it easy to carry is that Jesus is right there carrying the load with you, completely different than the Pharisees. Jesus isn't standing and saying, just do this, this, and this, and then I'll let you into heaven. No, Jesus came into the life on earth and said, let me bear the burden with you. Let me pay for all of your mis mistakes and falling short, and let me work in you so that you might work out the salvation I work in you. It's a completely different thing. And so, interestingly enough, the Sabbath is the only of the Ten Commandments that is not specifically re-articulated for Christians in the New Testament. And that makes sense, because it is a Jewish religious observance that was given specifically to Israel. And so Christians aren't called to be circumcised. And that becomes a big debate in the early church, right? This practice and the difference between those things. In the same way, they aren't called to Sabbath. But the underlying reality of Sabbath is significant for us as Christians in a greater way. And it's for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, because like everything else in the Old Testament law, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple, it was a shadow of what was accomplished in Jesus. We have our Sabbath available to us freely and fully in Jesus Christ. But also, because of that, because of that realignment, we can fully understand the original intent of Sabbath. Now, we're just as prone to religiosity and judgmentalism as anyone else. We're just as prone to uh, taking what should be a gift like the Sabbath and making it a work. We're just as prone to the idols of this world that elevate good things, security, uh, provision, success, significance, to being ultimate things, where we begin to step on the backs of others, or when we begin to ignore God and worship something else in its place. We're prone to all of those things. And for that reason, I would say that the Sabbath is still significant. And I don't care if you keep it on this day or that day. I don't care how you fit it into your life. But I will tell you this, that if you don't have a day of rest, then you are a slave, even if you were your own slave master. 
And you need to ask yourself what it is you're working for. Because if you're a Christian, chances are you already have it and something better. And I also want to say that when you understand the Sabbath and Jesus as Lord of it rightly, once again, it doesn't lead to working less. I'll give you one more example. Jonathan Wesley was so religious in the sense that we're talking about here, I think he was probably annoying to be around. As a college student, he started the Holiness Club, okay, that was devoted to keeping the rules of Christianity in a high standard. He made regular points of prayer and fasting and all of these things, but he had no security in his Christianity. When he went on his first mission trip, he was British, he came over to America uh, to evangelize us heathen Americans. While he was on the ship, there were some Christians who were Moravian brethren on the ship, and there was a storm. And just like Luther in that storm before he became a monk, Wesley was so freaked out in the storm. He was so afraid of his own death, had no sense of security. And the Moravians on the ship were singing worship songs in the middle of the storm out on the deck in the rain. And he thought to himself, what am I missing? And it was through that and asking that and exploring that that he eventually had this encounter with grace. He understood God's free gift of salvation available in Jesus Christ in a new way. But if you look at what happens next, I would argue that very few people, men or women, have worked as hard as John Wesley. He eventually moved to America and began modern-day Methodism and would preach up to eight times a day, moving from church to church, from city to city, all the way into his old age. Up to the year that he died, he was still a circuit rider preaching to these churches and leading this movement. But he didn't work for the same reasons. He worked from what Jesus had done, not to earn it. And that makes all the difference. It's a completely different way of life. And so, what I want us to take home today is that if we're in a place right now where the Christian life is a burden, where we feel like the son in Jesus' parable that we know as the older brother, that we've been slaving for God our Father all these years and he's never given us even a fatted calf to party with our friends. God has something better for us. He doesn't want slaves. He wants sons and daughters. He wants to invite us in. He says, the father in that parable says, son, all I have is yours. He doesn't have to earn it. He doesn't have to deserve it. If he feels like he's measuring up, that's his problem. Somehow the father has provided for the table already set. The invitation is already open and the son's just incapable of seeing it. That same table lays available to you today. The commandments of Jesus are not burdensome. They're freedom. They're life. They're flourishing. They're abundance. They're joy. They're rest. Let's pray. God, ever since the fall, there's been this peace in the human heart that twists every good gift you've given into a curse. And that's true with the Sabbath. It's true with so many things. And when we t twist it, Lord, we do it to the harm of ourselves 
and to others and to our relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, even though there was a great distance between us, even though all of us have fallen short, there is none who is without sin. That you sent Jesus to do what we could not do, to exert the effort that we did not have, to utilize the strength when we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And because of that, available just by putting our trust in you, we can be at rest. Not just assured of it someday, but have it now, presently. And I pray for everyone who calls themselves by your name this morning, that they would live from that place of rest. That they would serve not as your slave, but as your child, out of love and joy. And that we would not look on others who don't live up to your standards and look down upon them, Lord, but that like you, we would stoop down. We would bear the burden. We would lift up the cause and say, come, enjoy the good law of God. Forgive us individually, collectively as a church here and corporately as the church, your church. Forgive us for all of the places where we've burdened the outsider and ostracized those because, uh, because, frankly, they're just like us. Help us to be those who follow in your footsteps and bear the sins of others on our own shoulders and offer the free forgiveness available in Jesus Christ and seek to cultivate life and flourishing and love. Because that's who you are. You're the God of life. You're the God of love. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for inviting us into your rest. We pray this in Jesus' name.